Okay, so I'm going to begin by dispelling a rumor that was out there. The truth is I did not come to Connecticut because I wanted to pay taxes. I didn't come here because I wanted to be in the cold weather. I know those are all attractive reasons. The, the truth is, the rest of the story is, the day that I came here was April 1st, 2016, which everybody knows is April Fool's Day. And I gave my talk, and afterward, Gail and the family said to me that they had made a decision for me that it was in my best interest to move to Connecticut. And I thought it was an April Fool's Day joke, and they asked me if I would move here. And so I thought it was just a joke. Everybody knows who knows me. I'm really about 12 years old. I thought they were having fun at my expense. So I immediately said yes, not realizing that this was true. And then I had to figure out a way to tell my wife that I think I just took a job in Connecticut. But I'm thrilled to be here. Um, we're going to talk about gene therapy for glycogen storage disease. I will put up my disclosures. Fortunately, we have some disclosures. We work with VitaFlow, which is a subsidiary of Nestle on an extended release cornstarch. Um, Viking Therapeutics has a lipid-lowering drug. Ultragenics is a company we do the gene therapy with. Generation Biologic, BioModerna have new treatments that we have grant support from, but we, are, we will not address that today. But I have no financial interest in any of the work that I'm doing. Now, I'm thrilled to be here. Last time I tried to do this, we got over two feet of snow in February 2017. I was scheduled to give grand rounds, and I'm glad that we didn't get snow today. But I'm also thrilled because I think grand rounds is for the residents. And we are at the end of the year. We have some people who will be graduating soon. And so I wanted to begin with a message for the residents and students. Now, you're probably sitting here thinking, glycogen storage disease, that's so esoteric. I better just start doing my epic notes, or I can, I can be working on other work. Or Monica, if she's here, she's probably studying for the boards. But I want to give you what I want the residents to get out of this talk. The first thing is find something you love. If you're happy with what you're doing, you're going to be successful. Bigger is not always better. You know, I'm doing a rare disease that most people haven't heard about, and I love what I do. And I think, again, choose something that makes you happy. Don't be afraid to ask for help. With rare diseases, or with anything you do, you can't know everything. And it, it's, very, it's, it's very good to learn at this stage that it's okay to ask for help. Collaboration is the key to success. You, again, you can't be good at, any, at everything, and I'm very fortunate to be surrounded by 24 members of our team who will have lots of skills, and that's why our program is successful, because we collaborate and we collaborate with other people at this institution, other people at UConn, and other people around the world. For the residents, don't be afraid to take some chances. If you do the safe thing always, you're never going to make a difference. And I will show you how taking some chances led to the success that we have today. And finally, for those people who are graduating, don't lose your idealism. We all went into medicine to make a difference. And then you get out and you finish your residency and you go into private practice, or you become a specialist, and then all you start talking about is RVUs. And how many papers did I get out? But remember, we all went into medicine to make a difference. And if you do that, you're going to be successful. Well, when I was a resident, I was given a book by my mentor. 
And it was a book called Living a Life That Matters. And it, the book talked about the struggle of what's success. Is it money? Is it number of papers? Is it happiness? And it emphasizes that all people can make a difference. And you can make a difference. Well, I'm going to use my story to illustrate some of the things that I'm trying to teach. I started as an Alzheimer's pharmacologist. I um, started back um, in the 80s. I was doing Alzheimer's work. And I moved to Boston in 1989 to run a lab at Mass General. And I moved there because I was idealistic, and three of the five biggest people in the field of Alzheimer's were in Boston. I figured everybody's going to get together and talk and work together. And I got there, and I realized that that's not the way the real world works. The, the, all the leading people were in Boston, but nobody would talk. And I was doing a technique that other people weren't doing. So I worked with all three groups because they wanted my help. But I was told you're never allowed to discuss this with anybody else. I had to lock my lab book up in a safe at night. That just was not what I wanted to research for. The lab fortunately went well. But I was frustrated because the lab work I was doing did not lead to clinical benefit for the patients. Alzheimer's patients were still deteriorating. And that frustrated me. I hated watching people deteriorate. I did we, The research that I did was fortunately awarded the leading research in the field of gerontology from a graduate student, but it wasn't making a difference. I wanted to make a difference. I didn't see people collaborating, and I just hated the clinical arena, even though I loved the research. So I took a chance. The year that I won that award for the, the research, I was given a three-year grant to pursue my research, and I decided to give it up which everybody at Mass General said was crazy. I gave it up because I decided I wasn't going to be happy in this field, and I decided to become a pediatrician. I was probably the only member of the Gerontological Society of America and the American Academy of Pediatrics at the same time, but it was a big change that I, no matter who I spoke to, they said this, it was crazy. And then I ended up pursuing glycogen storage disease, which it's a long story, but when I decided to do it, um, I was told I was committing academic suicide. Well, everybody here probably remembers biochemistry. We're going to talk about glycogen storage disease type 1A, which is a defect in glucose 6-phosphatase. This is the most severe form of glycogen storage disease because all endogenous glucose production is impaired. And so anytime a person stops eating, the um, blood sugar can't go up, the blood sugar will fall rapidly, and children can have seizures or even die. In addition, shunting of glycogen into alternative pathways leads to buildup of uric acid, lactate, and lipids. Well, prior to 1971, glycogen storage disease was almost universally fatal. The only treatment was a port cable shunt. The idea was if you took the hepatic portal vein, bypassed it into the vena cava, it would keep the liver from taking up glucose. But you can imagine if you took a critically ill child and tried to do radical surgery on them, how well it went. And over half the children died during surgery, and most children died of complications afterward, and it wasn't a great treatment. 
In November 1971, this child was admitted to Boston Children's, which uh, by my mentor, John Kriegler. And Dr. Kriegler and Judah Folkman, two legends in our field, realized that this child would not survive the surgery and decided to put him on TPN, which had just been introduced. They put him on TPN to build up his strength prior to the surgery, but what they noticed is that if they, on the TPN, his triglycerides went from 25,000 down to normal, his lactate went from 25 millimoles per liter down to normal, and all his lab abnormalities improved. That led to the first medical treatment for glycogen storage disease, which was continuous feeds. And in the 70s, children would wear backpacks around or have pumps in their room, and they would be fed 24 hours a day by a pump, or they would do intermittent feeds during the day and a pump at night. These beautiful children, by the way, are Iris's children. And I love showing cute children, so Iris, thank you. But this treatment, while allowed people to survive, had problems. Um, Any time that pump would get interrupted, the blood sugars would rapidly fall. Children would frequently have seizures. And if that happened overnight, a child, unfortunately, could be found dead in the morning. So we needed better treatments. In the 1970s, Dr. Kriegler and Y.T. Chen at Duke and other legends in the field did work trying to find an alternative to continuous feeds, and they came up with a very fancy treatment, which I think everybody realizes, which is Argo cornstarch. Why Argo cornstarch? Well, in the 70s, any carbohydrate source that you can imagine was tested, and there are starches and carbohydrates that break down faster, But if it breaks down too fast, it's going to spike the sugar and increase glycogen storage. There were others that were slower, but if it's too slow, you're going to get hypoglycemic. Cornstarch had the unique property of being digested by the body at the same rate that the body uses energy. And that's where cornstarch came from. I challenge you to think of any other treatment where where we went from a disease that was almost universally fatal to one that people can do well for about 10 cents a day back then. Well, cornstarch came along, and because it was so cheap, interest in glycogen storage disease waned. No drug company was going to try to outdo cornstarch. And people were surviving, and people stopped coming into the field. And there was no progress from 1982 until 1998. In 1998, I got invited to speak at the National Conference for GSD, at the Association for Glycogen Storage Disease Conference. And I asked them, why are you inviting me? I only have two patients. And they said, well, we hear you give good care to your patients. Also, with two patients, that makes you an expert. And finally, we don't have any other doctors, so do you mind coming to speak to us? So I went to the conference, not because I had any interest in GSD. I went to the conference because it was a free trip, and Juan will tell you I like trips. But it was a a trip to Seattle, I had never been there. And I was shocked by what I saw. The children in the United States were not doing well. The conference began with a moment of silence, and they read the names of all the children in the United States who had died that year. The whole conference was devoted to liver transplantation. And everybody was excited because they were getting 10-year survival rate on average. And that, to me, was depressing. I sat at that conference 
thinking about what would it be like to be a parent here? And I met a mother who I sat down with. She was sitting by herself. Um, and I sat down with her because I wasn't part of the field. And I started talking to her. And she told me about her one-year-old boys who were on the liver transplant list. She had twin boys. And it struck me. She was telling me about how she hoped her kids live long enough to get a liver transplant. If your only hope is a liver transplant in a one-year-old child, that's not good. And I, the other thing that hit me was she told me about the stress that she was living under because when she got a call about having a liver, how do you choose one of your children when you have twins to get the liver transplant? And at, over lunch talking to her, I decided that the world didn't need another diabetes doctor, that this is where I could make a difference. And this was, again, taking that risk that I was talking to the, the residents about. And again, the, everybody at Boston Children's said, this is crazy. There's no need for a GSD doctor. Why would you give up when you're doing things are going so well? And sometimes you just have to follow your heart. Well, in 1998, as I said, people weren't doing well. There were lots of complications, hepatic adenomas, hepatocellular carcinoma, kidney failure, kidney stones, osteoporosis, anemia, small fiber neuropathy, and a bleeding diathesis. For the endocrinologist, you'll notice some of those complications sound like diabetes. So maybe someone wants to investigate why a disorder that is a low sugar has similar complications to a, a disease with high sugars. This is from 2002 from the European Study of Glycogen Storage Disease, which was a database. And what you can see is that by the end of puberty, almost 100% of people had adenomas in their liver and 100% um, of people had protein in the urine. 28% of adults were on dialysis. That wasn't good enough. Well, as I mentioned, I was a pediatric endocrinologist. When I was a medical student, people were treated with beef and pork um, insulin. And then I lived through, as a student and as a resident, the DCCT, the Diabetes Control and Complication Trial. And the average hemoglobin A1C back in the mid-90s in pediatrics was over 13, it was about 13%. Nowadays, we, we would never imagine having a diabetes patient with a hemoglobin A1C, but that was the average. And I was always taught, well, that's just the way it is. And then we saw that people could do better. So when I decided to do GSD, the average triglycerides were 1,280 in the United States. And my mentors were saying, well, that's just the way it is. And I questioned, could we prevent the complication if we improve metabolic control? So I'm not going to go into a talk on how we did it, but I will just say that there have been changes in the treatment since the 1990s. And while it's still cornstarch treatment, we've started treating cornstarch as a medication instead of a gravy thickener. Instead of just using teaspoons or tablespoons of cornstarch, we weigh it out to the gram to get it precise. You would never tell an anesthesiologist, just estimate the, the anesthesia. And so we started treating it with respect. And we started treating it with small doses more frequently instead of every six hours, which was just chosen, really, at the beginning. We started to get strict with the diet. If you study your biochemistry, you realize that fruit sugar goes in, has to go into the liver and dairy sugar. And it made no sense that people were being treated with fruit and dairy, so we got strict with the diet. And I remember one day, I was at the conference in 2005, 
and I was looking at the food that they were serving the patients, which was all carbohydrate, pastas and breads and rice. And you never know it now, but I used to be, run marathons. And I remember thinking, this is the exact same meal that we're serving the GSD patients as they served before the marathon, where we're supposed to be loading up our glycogen. Why are we treating people with so much carbohydrate? And so we started to restrict the carbohydrates and teach people carbohydrate counting, just like you would do in diabetes. And with these changes, the complications have pretty much disappeared. So this is an article by Monica Damska, who will be as a resident here next year as Monica Williams. And what you can see is we have the different eras of GSD care here from the continue from the port cable shunt era over on the, the far left to the continuous feed era to the initial cornstarch era and finally the modern era. And what you can see is at the end of puberty, the complication rate has fallen from 100% down to 4%. And the children are doing great. You see up on the upper left, the twin boys, who the ones who were one year of age um, back in 1998. This was when they were in high school playing football. They graduated from college two weeks ago. On the right, you see Iris's son, who was when he was playing lacrosse at college. And you can see healthy people. That lady on the bottom ran a triathlon. And you can see a picture of her. She was going from the swimming to the biking. And she has her cornstarch in the back there. So this, these are not the short, fat people that they taught you about in medical school. These are normal people. Six of my patients have become doctors with six of my patients with 1A. Two of them are here at Connecticut Children's. The Monika Damska and then Julieta Bonvin will be arriving from Argentina this week, and she will be joining our team. But I'm just thrilled to see people with this, this disease coming in and joining us and helping to treat other you know, future generations. The first child born to a mother with glycogen storage disease type 1A occurred in 2002, and we're now up to 55 babies born to mothers in our program. One of the mothers has had seven children, and I just want to know why would anybody want to have seven children? <laughs> but I, I love children, but, that's, that's, but that shows you how well people are doing. If people can go from... If they can have seven children, work full-time, be married, it shows you that this is not the disease that it was 20 years ago. So I'm going to talk about gene therapy for the rest of the time. And why are we talking about gene therapy? We're talking about gene therapy because this is a disease that you have to be perfect. You can have well-controlled glycogen storage disease, and if you miss an overnight dose, or if you're on a pump and the pump stops, the blood sugar will still go down to zero. And there are very few things in life where you have to be perfect. This is one of them. People still can't eat fruit and dairy, and it's hard to get people to be compliant with that as they get older. And so we are dedicated to getting better treatments. The other reason is this treatment is still cornstarch. And when it's cornstarch, doctors around the world do not respect it. So these are children um, that I saw in the last few years from Europe. And since I want to keep people awake, how old is this little girl? So I was on, I was on vacation. I was taking a river cruise from Bucharest, um, Romania, to Budapest, where I was teaching a course. And I checked my email, 
And I should not have done that, but there was this note from this father begging for help for his daughter. And he sent me that pic he sent me a picture of her. And I saw the picture and I said, oh, I have to do something, even though I'm on vacation. By chance, our boat was stopping in her hometown the next day. I will never be in Serbia again, but somehow our boat was going to be there. So I wrote them back and I said, you know, you're not going to believe this, but I'm going to be there tomorrow. Can you meet me at the port? So you can see our river boat in the background. That girl is 23 years of age. And that, I don't know how she survived, but that shows you what the disease still can be. In the middle, you see children from Germany. You would think Germany has good care. The tall boy is 17 years old. The shorter boy is his older brother. And you can see even places that have great healthcare systems, the kids are struggling. And in 2013, I was honored with being knighted in Poland thanks to the efforts of the patients and, and especially Monica Damska. And that boy at the end, um, the mother drove from Moldova and waited outside the ceremony because she had heard about it asking for help. That boy is four years old. And so even though there's a treatment, which is cornstarch, kids are suffering and we can't turn our backs on them. And maybe if we have a, a medicine, people will take it more seriously than they do cornstarch. So I just like to keep people awake. So let me just show you the impacts of cornstarch. So this is the girl from Serbia, and this is one year later. At 24 years of age, she grew 20 centimeters, and she got healthy and went to work. She had dropped out of school at seven years of age because she had been so sick before that. The other reason we need to do it again is because we have to be perfect. And so what you see here are children and young adults who died because they missed an overnight dose of cornstarch. Nobody should ever have to live with that. The, the kids on the top were absolutely in perfect health. The little girl that you can see me hugging, Nina, she had perfect labs, but her parents had a miscommunication. They used to alternate nights to decide, you know, so that one of them could get sleep. And they had a miscommunication. Each one thought the other one was doing the feed, and she was found, unfortunately, dead in the morning. The boy on the top there had his bar mitzvah. This disease is more common in Ashkenazi Jewish people. He had his bar mitzvah. He decided that he wanted to um, take responsibility for himself. He was on the extended release cornstarch, which allowed him to sleep through the night. So his parents said, okay. Even though they were waking up every three hours for a baby that had GSD in the family, they didn't check on the 13-year-old because he wanted his independence. He fell asleep watching TV, missed his, missed his cornstarch, and unfortunately died. So we owe it to these children to come up with better treatments, even though I'm thrilled with um, how well people are doing now. So gene therapy, we've all heard about for a long time. So the, the idea of doing gene therapy and modifying genes goes all the way back to 1967. That's a long time ago. The first human trial was 1980. And I remember when I was in medical school hearing about gene therapy and everybody said it was going to change the world. And it's been you know, almost 30 years. And we still haven't seen the success. So why should you believe now? Well, we've learned from mistakes. 
1999, gene therapy was tried at the University of Pennsylvania in a boy with OTC deficiency. The virus that was being used was adenovirus, and adenovirus, while it's very powerful and infects a lot of the cells in the liver, was too strong. And when they did the gene therapy with adenovirus, the, the child developed viral sepsis, and he died within 48 hours. The next mistake occurred in 2002. They went from adenovirus to lentivirus. And lentivirus had a problem in that it inserted into the DNA at a place where it caused damage and the, the children ended up with leukemia. So gene therapy, as many people remember, got stopped in the United States. And for several years, all trials were stopped while the government decided how to deal with this. Well, there are a lot of changes that were done. There was, there's much more oversight. Early on, gene therapy was falling through the cracks. It was not a drug, so the FDA wasn't actually supervising it, and that's how some of these problems occurred. And the FDA took oversight. They also created a gene therapy committee at the um, NIH to make sure that what we're doing is safe and scientifically sound. Instead of going for the strongest viruses, we went to the weaker viruses that won't make people sick. And more prolonged studies are needed in animals. So that the, if the, with the lentivirus, when they tried that, they went from the dog studies to humans within six months. And if they had just waited a couple of years, they would have seen that the dogs developed leukemia. But things were going so fast that they didn't um, wait long enough to see if complications occurred, and that's no longer allowed. So we are using AAV virus. When I'm talking to families about this, I compare the, I, I use a gun analogy, which is not great, but I think it's something that a lot of people can deal, deal with. Adenovirus is like a machine gun. AAV is like a water gun. It's a harmless virus. It goes, attacks liver, but doesn't have the ability to replicate. It's non-integrating, so we're not going to get the problems with the lentivirus. And it is not associated with human disease. I don't think anybody's ever seen a case where a child came to the hospital with, after being infected with AAV, even though it's a naturally occurring virus. It's so harmless that the regulatory agencies give it a biosafety level one rating, which basically means you wear gloves. Um, at UConn, we're using higher standards, but um, it's, the, the government is very comfortable with this. But we have been working on gene therapy now for over 20 years. The work started at Boston Children's in liver cells. 1999 to 2005, we went to mice, in large part with work done by Janice Chu at the NIH and Dwight Corbrell at Duke. Again, collaboration is the key. And in 2005, our team moved from Boston Children's to the University of Florida to pursue gene therapy in dogs. So let me show you the mice. These were created by Janice Chu. It's a very good model where they have low sugars, high triglycerides, high cholesterol, high uric acid. Under the microscope, you can see the liver and the kidneys look like GSD. I'm going to show you a video to summarize the mouse studies. So this is a mouse with GSD-1A, six weeks old, getting a fasting study. And what you can see here is the blood sugar started at 158. 30 minutes of the fast, it went, fell to 142. After one hour, the blood sugar is 106. 
After 90 minutes, the blood sugar had fallen to 78. And after two hours, the blood sugar is 20. And this is the same thing that would happen to people with GSC if they didn't have treatment. By two hours and 15 minutes, the mouse is getting very lethargic. And by two hours and 20 minutes, the mouse went into a hypoglycemic coma. Now, instead of giving glucose, young Lee in my lab gave gene therapy because the FDA wanted to know how fast does gene therapy work. And 20 minutes later, mouse woke up. You can see the blood sugar was still 26. We didn't give any glucose. But what's happened is the gene therapy is going to the liver, sugar's beginning to come out, and it went to the brain first, and that's why the mouse woke up. And over the next hour, the blood sugar started to increase, the mouse started to get better, and the mouse was more active. But what we did is we then stopped the studies, we let the mouse eat, had a couple meals, and then we repeated the study the next day. What you can see, two hours after, into the fast, the blood sugar went to 149, was 149 instead of 20. The mouse is active and alert, looking fine. Four hours, the blood sugar is 162. Six hours into the fast, it's 131. 24 hours into the fast, the blood sugar is 137. Again, this mouse was, the same mouse was almost dead the day before at two hours. So 31 hours of fasting, the blood sugar is 128. And ultimately, we stopped at 48 hours because even though the blood sugar was still normal, it was 143, because I think we had made our point that the gene therapy was doing its job. We stopped also because the mouse had lost 30% of its weight, and, but was still active alert. That mouse, along with hundreds of other mice, lived the rest of their lives without ever needing treatment again. Now, because of the mistakes of the past, we had to then do studies in dogs. The dogs were not created to have GST. These are naturally occurring animals. Does anybody have a Maltese? Maltese naturally have GST. And people don't realize it because sometimes puppies die at birth, and you would never know that that dog could potentially could have had GST. Dogs with GSD have undetectable blood sugars at birth, and they die within one hour. So it's a very severe disease in the dogs. Prior to the gene therapy, no dog, even with medical treatment, had, la had survived more than four weeks. Well, we ended up treating eight dogs. We treated five dogs at birth, and it worked. We went back to the FDA and said, okay, we've now treated mice, we've treated dogs at birth, and they said, that's great, but you're not treating people at birth. We want you to treat older dogs. And that was a challenge. As I said, no dog had lived more than 28 days. So in order to accomplish this, what we had to do was get students to be with the dogs 24 hours a day. And we had two or three students in with the dogs. They were not in cages. They, were in, they had their dog suite at the University of Florida. And the students were in there, and they would feed them every 30 minutes to keep their blood sugars up. And they did this for seven years. Every holiday, every time they exams, they were still in there 24 hours a day. So we, through that, we were able to get um, a couple dogs to be older. We treated one dog at two years of age, Ginger, and then you can see Gemini and Colin at six months of age. Well, if you look under the microscope, you'll see the impact of gene therapy in the dogs. 
On your left, you see the liver before the gene therapy. There's lots of clear material, which is the glycogen. In the third column, you see after the gene therapy, you can see the glycogen's disappeared. And the, the fourth column is a normal liver. This was the first of our dogs that was older. This, this is Ginger. This is at two months of age. And the dog had gained one ounce total between one month of age and two months of age. She was very sick. She was having low sugars. And ethically, I just could not continue to do the feeds you know, when the dog is not doing well. So we did gene therapy at two months of age. And what you can see is the dog became a healthy dog. And it worked in all the dogs. And when you treat the older dogs, it worked even better than it did in the young dogs. Here you see the biochemical data from the dogs after seven years. And you can see that the liver function tests, the hepatic transaminases, the glucose, cholesterol, and triglycerides normalized and stayed normal for seven years. And it was, would have still been going, except we decided to make the journey up here to experience the cold weather. And just, I love showing the dogs, just like I love showing cute people. These are the dogs that had gene therapy. You would never know that they were born with a fatal disease. Well, based upon the success in the mice and the dogs, a drug company decided to partner with us to bring gene therapy to humans. So in December 2014, Dimension Therapeutics had a, basically a contest where they invited people from 13 different diseases to come make an appeal why his or her disease should be chosen. And fortunately, they chose GSD. In February 2015, they came to Florida to review the animal data. They thought it was strong enough to get through the regulatory agencies. And then they announced it April 23rd, 2015. They then built a factory outside of Boston. This is in Woburn. And this factory right now is being used for nothing but manufacturing the vector for the gene therapy study. The celebration of this was one year to the day after the announcement, April 23rd, 2016. We then had to repeat the mouse studies with the product that was coming from that factory. That's what we did in 2017. And then in June 2017, we went to the recombinant advisory committee, which was the gene therapy committee at the NIH. Now, this committee has a very bad reputation for eating the scientists and the doctors alive. I was told to cancel all my patients for a month to, to work with a consultant to prepare for this committee. I didn't do that because patients come first. And three weeks after we submitted our application to the RAC, they came back saying that they had no scientific safety or ethical concerns. They weren't going to require public hearing and that we could go on to the FDA. Well, that triggered a lot of excitement. Now, all these meetings are public information. And what happened next really was shocking. Five companies decided that this was going to be the next gene therapy trial. And a bidding war started for GSD. I never thought we would have companies fighting for GSD. And um, by the time this was done, the price of Dimension Therapeutics had gone from $28 million up to $151 million. And it was bought out by Ultragenics, which is a company specializing in rare diseases. We then went in January 2018 to the FDA, now that we had a partner. And April 23rd, 2018, the FDA approved the gene therapy trial, three years to the day from the initial announcement. So let me show you our trial. We're doing a phase one, two safety and dosing trial um, at the University of Connecticut and here at Connecticut Children's. 
What, the way that this works is that you pick the dose that you think you need based upon the dogs and the mice. That is cohort dose two. You then have to try a trial dose for safety. So you take the dose you need and take a third of it, and that's what we gave to the first cohort. And it's, the goal is to make sure it's safe before we treat lots of people. We then collect 12 weeks of data, goes to an independent uh, data monitoring committee. They make the decision whether it's safe, whether we can continue, whether we go to a higher dose, or whether we stop. So we treated our first patient in July 2018. This is, um, you can go to YouTube, you'll find, you can, there's a whole video on this if you're interested. But that's the picture from the infusion. The second patient got treated in August, and the third patient got treated in September. Again, these are the low dose, basically the testing dose. There were no dose-limiting toxicities, no fevers, no cold symptoms, no reaction at all. I was, we were talking before, this was almost anticlimactic. You wait for 20 years to get to this point, and it looks like you're giving saline, and there's no reaction at all. What we ended up seeing is about four weeks after we did the gene therapy, patients started to experience high blood sugars. In retrospect, we saw that with the mouse. We just didn't appreciate it because we weren't doing the monitoring. And it's like the door opens to the liver and the glycogen starts pouring out of there, even though there are no signals, there's no glucagon, there's no counter-regulatory signals telling the liver to do it, it's, the glycogen starts coming out of the liver. And we started getting high sugars. So we ended up taking the first patient and bringing him to Connecticut Children's to try to understand what was going on. And what we realized is that if we cut his cornstarch, he got better. So the trial was not designed to stop cornstarch. It was designed just to make sure that the virus was safe. But we ended up having to cut the cornstarch because of the hyperglycemia. Now, I want to be very open and transparent. There have been eight uh, mild adverse events. Two people have reported headaches. Um, the two males of the first cohort reported increased libido, if that's a side effect. We had some transient liver function test elevation. One patient complained because he um, had to start shaving every day. He had never had to shave before, and now his testosterone has gone up, and he's having to shave, and he thought that was annoying. And then one patient reported anxiety after we cut his cornstarch. And we, it was very difficult for him to do. But that, that's it. That's what, those are the only side effects we got. I have the, the fasting studies to show you what happens what we, when we bring them into the hospital. These are fasting studies done at 12 weeks. So what you see is subject one had a 103% increase in his duration of fasting. Number two had a 120% increase in her fasting. But I want you to notice that she, never, she was not low when we stopped the fasting study, she stopped because it was the first time in her life she'd ever gone through the night without treatment. And when she woke up and realized that her blood sugar, that she hadn't been woken up, she was nervous that something was wrong, and she asked to stop. And of course, patients have the right to stop. So it was a 120% increase with a caveat that she probably could have gone a lot longer. Number three may look like it failed, but it didn't. Actually, number three had the most dramatic response out of anybody. Number three was um, 50, 52 at the time, and he called the gene therapy the fountain of youth. 
he said that we had turned him into a teenager. He's one of the people who reported the increased libido. And he started acting like a teenager. And what he ended up doing was stopping his cornstarch he, without, um, against our recommendations. So he went three and a half weeks with no cornstarch. And when that happened, he started getting problems with insulin. So what we now realize is the body's adapted to GSD physiology. If you constantly are feeding people the pancreas, or hypothesis of pancreas hypertrophies, and you can't just stop the cornstarch because the pancreas is hypertrophied and it's very carb sensitive, and we have to gradually come off the cornstarch, otherwise we get into issues with endogenous insulin. And that's what happened there because he had been off it and when he saw carbohydrate, he spiked his insulin and came down. So it looks like he failed, but he actually um, had a dramatic response. What you see here are the 24-week fasting. And what you see is started to come down, but then was able to raise his blood sugar back over 100 without us intervening. And that should, physiologically should not be possible with GSD. Number two started to come down, but then stabilized. And she went um, 13 and a half hours with normal blood sugars. Again, she stopped not because of hypoglycemia. She stopped this time because she was hungry. And number three was still being an adolescent and still had an insulin response. So let me show you data from where we are right now. Subject one has weaned down to five grams of cornstarch. He started on 405. I can tell you that that five grams is during the day and it's not doing anything. But getting, the, he, he, at this point, he's too nervous to go from five grams down to nothing. But if he misses it, he has no problems. Number two is not being followed here and the team's a little bit more nervous about weaning. So she's down only 47%, but she's gonna be brought into the hospital to wean more. And number three is down 81%. He's about six weeks behind subject one and he's continuing to wean his, his therapy. I can tell you that all those patients have missed their cornstarch and when they miss their cornstarch, they don't have hypoglycemia anymore. We've had significant weight loss occur. So number one has lost 25 pounds and number three has lost 35 pounds because they don't have to eat anymore and they're also the livers have shrunk up. Number one's liver went from 7.6 centimeters down to 0.6 centimeters at, at this point. Yesterday I saw the sixth patient and his liver in six weeks has already shrunk by more than 5.8 centimeters. What's also exciting is they've gotten sick, the patients have had gastroenteritis, and they don't have hypoglycemia, they're doing well. So there are some challenges that with gene therapy, 20 to 30% of people will have antibodies against the virus, and that's why we're working with those other companies to come up with alternatives. Once you do the treatment, they will have antibodies, and we know that this treatment won't last forever, so we have to deal with how are we going to do boosters in the future. And liver inflammation can occur and if you get liver inflammation, you can lose the virus. So that's something also that we have to deal with. But we're very excited by the results. I'd like to end with coming back to the residents with a story. So how many people here have heard about the chocolate bar book? Not many, oh, a few people. So every, a lot of the work that we did before was done by fundraising and philanthropy. And we were doing a, a, an event in LA and the six-year-old boy on your right 
wanted to come to the black tie affair and his parents said, we're not spending $500 for you to come to the event and it's not appropriate for a child. And he said, I want to do something to help my, my best friend who had GSD. So he told me over dinner that he was going to do a fundraiser and he was going to raise a million dollars. And I said, good luck Dylan with your lemonade stand or your bake sale. I hope you do it. And what he did is he wrote a book called The Chocolate Bar. And you can see from the artwork, it really was done by a six-year-old. And Chocolate Bar meant anything that was awesome. So the first page was going to Disney World, how Chocolate Bar. Second page was going to the beach, also Chocolate Bar. And he wrote things that he liked to do. And he made pictures. And he started, um, and the last page was, I like to help my friends. That is the biggest chocolate bar. It's a great message. And he started selling the book in his kindergarten class, and the kids bought it. And then he started selling in the school. Then the school board said, this is great, having kids help other kids. Let's sell it in all the schools. And then the LA newspapers picked it up. And then the national news picked it up. Then the international news picked it up. And by the time that this was done, the six-year-old boy had raised $1.5 million for glycogen storage disease research, which was more than all foundations in the NH combined. So for the residents, I want you to be like Dylan, that six-year-old boy. Don't get cynical like adults get. If someone said to you, go raise one, one and a half million dollars, we'd all say, no, can't do it. But that boy believed he could do it, and he did it. And I hope that you, those that are graduating in two weeks, will go out there and change the world, go find something you love. I want to end by thanking the best team that anybody can have. This was a picture on the right before we did the gene therapy. These are the members of our basic science team, including Ilan over there. And uh, I don't think the rest of the team is here today. And this is our clinical research team. And these are just amazing, dedicated individuals that this is a team effort. This is not a one-person effort. And the success we're having is because of all of these people. And finally, the patients. It takes a lot of guts to go into a trial that is first in human. And we appreciate that people did this when it was untested. And also to go into it knowing you're getting the low dose, the test dose, that, that is pretty remarkable that people would do it. So thank you very much.